Take out the little study outline. There's a couple of scriptures I'd like us to read together uh, while we remain standing, and then I'll let you take your seat, okay? Would you read these aloud with me, the the, uh, verses in bold face at the top? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And Lord, we pray now that through your holy word, you would increase in our hearts a holy reverence for you and who you are. In this place, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now you can go ahead and take your seat. (laughs) I want to remind you that uh, Easter, our celebration of our risen Lord, is just two weeks away, and I hope you're thinking about um, not only being here yourself, but also who you might want to invite and uh, join, join you here in our time of worship. We'll also be receiving a special Easter offering as we do every year, and this year it will go to our local partner, Grin, Gahanna Residents in Need, and a particular project they've asked us to partner with them in, which is to provide uh, weekend snack packs for children, underprivileged children in our community who might go without nourishment over the course of a weekend, and uh, we said that we would love to do that, and so you can be asking the Lord how you might want to participate in that. Well, I think it's in the providence of God that um, on this particular weekend, we're arriving in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes at chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, to a passage of Scripture that has as its theme the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. And I got thinking about this, some people think that the fear of God is just a an Old Testament concept that's kind of outdated now and doesn't apply much to us today. They say that the God of the Old Testament was holy and and wrathful and fearsome, but that the New Testament God is loving and kind and nice, and so they prefer Him. But I would want to remind those people that It was Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament who spoke the words that we just read. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And who is that? That's God. Fear God, Jesus said. And it was a New Testament author who wrote this to some people who were professing to be Christians. This is Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Does that sound like Old Testament to you? It's New Testament. And it was Peter, that disciple of Jesus, who in his New Testament letter wrote this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 
And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, yes, it is true that the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on this earth changed things. Amen? Thankfully, Jesus stood in our place. Thankfully, Jesus bore the full force of the wrath of God that we all deserve for our many sins. And yes, it is true that believers are now declared to be the sons and the daughters of the Most High God by faith. Adopted into His family, right? And the Father treats us that way. All of that is true, and we praise God for that. But none of that should cause us to lose sight of who it is that's become our Father. None of that should lead us into having a a cavalier attitude towards sin. God is God. There are not two gods. There is just one God. The same God who opened up the earth and swallowed up Korah and his cronies back in the Old Testament is the same God who the New Testament tells us has become our dad, our father, by faith. Same God. And our good father, we sing about him, right? Our good, good father still hates sin to the core. And you know what? Our father promises to discipline his sinning children when they are not repentant. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God spanks his kids, that's what it's saying, when they need it. We should be encouraged by that, actually. If you profess Jesus Christ and you've never received a good spanking from the Lord, you might want to be concerned a little bit. Verse 11 of Hebrews 12 says, For the moment... All, excuse me, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, those who learn its lessons. So just know this, there is a New Testament fear of the Lord. What is it? It's having a holy reverence for a holy God. It's dreading the thought of displeasing him. It's hating the sin that drove him to nail his own son to an old rugged cross. It's being fearful of the consequences of continuing to hide our sin and cherish it and hold on to it rather than bringing it up into the light. It's knowing that God's discipline of his children is inevitable if we belong to him. And it's going to be as severe as it needs to be in order to achieve his purpose. Fearing the Lord is being appropriately sobered by all of those realities. Are you with me? It's not that we're supposed to go around living our lives being scared of God, you know, cowering in his presence, frightened that if we slip up, he's going to, you know, incinerate us and turn us into a pile of ashes. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that kind of fear. It's more like being awestruck. It's coming into God's presence utterly blown away 
that a holy God would allow someone like me within a million miles of him. You know what? Wise people cultivate that kind of a holy fear. Doesn't the Bible say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Wise people fear the Lord. Wise people fear the Lord. And so with all of that as a backdrop, let me read our passage for today from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you have a copy of the scriptures or your outline, I have it printed on there for you. The, the theme of this section is this, worship God with reverence in the house of God. And he opens up this chapter like this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words." And when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Making that vow is the idea. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity but God is the one that you must fear. So what do we have here? We know who the writer is of Ecclesiastes. His name is Solomon, King Solomon. And uh, we've been walking with him through his journal called the book of Ecclesiastes. And up to now, he's been bemoaning the futility of life under the sun, right? Life lived on a purely horizontal plane, life lived apart from any awareness of God. Solomon let us know that, that he tried just about everything this world has to offer in search of true happiness. He set out to experience every kind of pleasure, every kind of achievement, every kind of success that can be found under the sun. But when his little experiment was over, even though he had reached the top, even though he had Climbed to the pinnacle of success, he gave us his assessment, and in a word, it was what? Vanity, yeah. Hollow, empty, meaningless, pointless. It left him feeling empty and depressed, and, and we've tracked with him on this journey. And then he looked around at the various aspects of what's going on in this world, various uh, parts of human existence, and, and what he observed, what he saw, didn't give him much encouragement either. And he showed us example after example after example of oppression in this world and injustice and people suffering and people being lonely and all manner of disheartening realities in this world. And that too just added up to a sense of emptiness. Like, what's the point of it all? It seemed meaningless to him. But now, this, chapter 5. There's a change here, isn't there? There's a, there's a change of tone here. And one thing that's interesting is, is all of a sudden he mentions God, and he mentions God a lot. There have been a, a few glimpses of God up till now, 
And of course, Solomon is a Jew, and we know that Jews were monotheists. Jews believed in God. During this season, though, this, this, this experimentation, Solomon had kind of set God aside, right? Pushed him out of his thoughts. But occasionally, his religious upbringing would, would push its way back into his consciousness, like right here. And in essence, we find Solomon saying, let's, let's re-enter God into the picture, at least for a few moments. God, the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God I learned about from my dad growing up, that God. And he brings God back into the conversation. And did you see where he goes with it, though? He goes to church. He goes to the house of God. He goes to the people of God, entering into the house of God to worship the Lord. Of course, in those days, the people of God would have been the people of Israel. And the house of God would have been the temple there in the city of Jerusalem, the magnificent temple that Solomon himself had constructed. And, and as he brings to mind that picture of the Sabbath day and all of the people streaming into the temple courts with all of their children in tow, all the members of their family with them, and of course all of their animals, because remember the sacrificial system was still in force at this time. And when Solomon thinks of what he observes there on the Sabbath day, one primary message rises up in his heart, and it's this. You people need to fear God more. Your worship of God is tainted. You need to approach God in holy reverence. Now, just imagine that. Here's a political ruler telling the people of his land that they need to worship God with more holy fear. That's something you don't hear about every day. And there's a sternness in his tone. He's, he's serious about this. He's observed a certain, let's call it carelessness, in God's people as they came to worship. Kind of a loose attitude, kind of a cavalier sort of a mindset. They were taking it lightly. Coming to meet Almighty God was not the serious business that it should have been. And, and he's going to confront it and correct it. That's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy, I think, to take God lightly. God is spirit. He's invisible to our eyes. We, we can't see Him. Even this room tonight, we, we can't see Him. But He's here. We can sense Him. But it can become easy, I think, if... If our spiritual eyes aren't peeled to think, well, God's not really here. I mean, almighty God's not really here. I think this notion of careless worship wasn't just relegated to Solomon's day. I think it's prevalent in our day, too, and, and even here in our church. If God is just kind of like our buddy, you know, our bro, then we can miss the weightiness of who he is, the the gravitas of his person. Sometimes I wonder how things would be different if God decided to just suddenly show up one day. 
like show up and manifest himself in all of his glory, that would probably change things a little bit. Or I think about how our reverence would would ramp up dramatically if he just opened up the floor here, you know, and swallowed alive all of those among us who are just pretenders, who are just playing games with God, like he did in the Old Testament. Don't you think our holy fear would take on a new intensity? You know? Where's Frank? Well, he's not with us anymore. There were three things that Solomon observed in the people of God uh, attending worship that bothered him. Three things that he saw in terms of their attitude that, that made him want to just pause and, and, and talk about this. Careless preparation, careless praying, and careless pledges or vows. These three things reflect a lack of reverence for God. And so he addresses each one, and he starts with careless preparation. He's talking about preparation for worship, preparation to come to church. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. We might say, watch your step. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they're doing evil. What's he saying here? He's saying give some thought regarding what you're about to do when you're heading into the house of worship. Think about it for a few minutes. Think about who you're going to meet with. We say, well, I'm going to meet with, with Kathy and with Joe and with my friends. And, and of course, we, we love being in the family of God, but primarily... He's saying, when you go to the house of worship, you're going to meet with God, with the Lord. Think about that. Think about whose presence you're going to be entering, and then carefully prepare your heart for that. Think about this. If you or I got an invitation in the mail to go and have a meeting with the President of the United States, a very powerful man, I'm thinking that none of us would be silly or would be goofing off as we were being ushered into the White House. We would realize that that moment called for a certain decorum, a certain respectfulness, don't you think? And like it says here, I don't imagine we would walk in and start talking up a storm and start spouting off all of our opinions about things. No, we would probably feel overwhelmed in that moment, and we would likely keep our mouth shut until we were asked to speak, don't you think? We would approach the whole thing with great caution because we would understand the disparity of power that is in that room. Our posture would likely be one of humble deference and attentiveness and respectful listening, given the setting and especially given the audience. King Solomon himself was a very powerful political figure, and yet he even realized that God towers over all of humanity, peasant and king, and everyone in between. And he should be shown honor, proper honor by everyone. He's saying that being loud and brash or or 
cutting up or making wisecracks in the presence of God is, is just, it's not appropriate and it kind of smacks of ignorance. Someone who doesn't really get it, doesn't really get God. Someone who he uses the term foolish. And so Solomon calls upon the people of God to be careful, to prepare their hearts as they make their way into worship, to set aside frivolity and lighthearted silliness. Now there's a time for that, there's a season for those things, Solomon already told us, but, but this is not it. This is the time to meet with God. This is the time to be reverent before Almighty God. An essential part of this is preparing our hearts to hear from God, right? We were praying as a team in the back room before the celebration tonight, and several people prayed, Lord, we're, we've come to hear from you, come to hear from God. And that's what he says here, draw near to listen. He seems to be calling us to a general posture of, of leaning in to listen rather than talk when we come to worship. Come primarily to hear from God to absorb the weighty words of God instead of coming to hear what other people think or coming to spout off your own opinions about things. Now again, this doesn't mean that we should not ever talk when we come into this room or that we can't be joyful or laugh or sing. We do that, but a wise person is going to come in with a prepared heart primarily looking to hear and obey the word of God. I love my brother right over here because he's told me many times, I come to church here because I want to hear the Word of God. You said that to me, right? I want to hear the Word of God. I do too. We need to hear His words. We need to have our hearts prepared to hear from the Lord. So for us today, God's instruction is this. Do you see it, see it in the box there? Approach worship gatherings with your heart Prepared to meet God. That's something you do at home before you come. It's something you do in your car on the way here. Maybe it's kind of music you're listening to as you approach. Maybe it's as you're walking down the walkway or into the lobby or walking into this room. You're just saying, Lord, I'm, I'm coming to hear from you today. I'm, I'm, I want to hear from you. Your words are more important than my words. May my heart be open to you and I want to hear your word and I want to heed your word and I want to obey your word. Speak to me. Like Samuel, even as a boy, prayed, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I wonder if that's our attitude when we come to worship. Well, that was one thing that Solomon observed that kind of gave him some heartburn. And there was a second thing. He builds on this idea further by also decrying what I'll call careless praying. So careless preparation and careless praying. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. He's talking about what we say. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Isn't it interesting? He talks about the heart uttering words. Why, could, why does he say that? Because he understood that, that what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. What's in here comes out here, right? Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. 
He's just trying to set the landscape here. This is not, we're not equals here. We're not peers. It's like standing in the West Wing with the president. We're not peers. Therefore, let your words be few. For as a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words, which was a proverb of the time. Part of worship is praying, yes? Part of worship, part of public worship is praying. Praying is us talking with God. That's a simple definition of it. When you speak to the Lord, that's called prayer. And for centuries, Christians have included prayer as part of their public worship. And we follow that precedent here. We just did it a few moments ago, didn't we? We prayed together. We gathered in little prayer pods and lifted our voices up to the Lord. Did you notice that Solomon offers a little bit of a caution here regarding our praying? He says, if God's people truly realize who it is we're speaking to when we pray. See, if you're, if you're holding hands with people and you're praying and, and they're praying and you hear their words, but, but we're talking to God. Prayer is not meant, you know, necessarily to impress the people around us. And he says, if, if we truly realized who it is that we're talking with, then, then our prayers are going to have a certain tone about them. They're going to have a certain humility about them. We're talking to God. There's going to be a certain carefulness, a certain restraint, a thoughtfulness behind our words. Our words uttered by our lips won't be rash or hasty. And he says they'll be few. We're not going to mindlessly blabber on and on and on. By the way, does that remind you of somebody else's instruction about prayer? Who said these words? And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Where one translation says, don't keep on babbling like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Who said that? Jesus Christ. I came across a truth about praying lately that uh, has ministered to me and has helped me and it's changed how I pray. It came out of a book on prayer I was reading and the author reminded me that the picture that the New Testament portrays of a Christian person, a believer praying, is not the picture of an orphan begging a stranger to give him something to eat. That's not the picture of a New Testament Christian praying. Not an orphan, nor is it the picture of a slave begging his master for a few scraps of bread from off his master's table. That's not the picture. Why? Because we are the adopted children of our Father, our Father who is the mighty God, and we don't have to beg incessantly. We've been given a standing with Him, a status, if you will, a standing that raises us above that, above that of an orphan, above that of a slave. We're the sons and daughters of God. We're not heard because of our pleading and our many words. We're heard because we are in Christ. 
his son. We have that standing. We've been giving that standing. His standing before the Father has become our standing. Does this make sense? By faith. That, by the way, is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. I hope that insight helps you as it's helped me. Having a proper fear of God in worship means this. Come first to hear God speak and then respond with simple prayer and eager obedience. I'm coming to hear God and I'm going to respond to Him with my prayers and my obedience. And then King Solomon brings up a third evidence that he saw in the crowd, the throngs streaming in for worship, evidence of a lack of proper fear of God. He'd noticed that there were some people who were there making careless pledges or vows. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Talk, talking about making careless commitments to God. And do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. I, I didn't really mean that. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hand? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's that problem with too many words again, there is vanity or emptiness, but God is the one you must fear. Now over in the New Testament, we're given a very stark and startling example of vow making without vow keeping. You know what it is? It's found in the story of the very first Christian church. Do you remember reading about that in the book of Acts? And we preached through this last year, there was a couple who made a vow and didn't keep it. Remember their names? Ananias and Sapphira. Have you noticed not too many parents name their children those names? They were a married couple there. They're members of the New Life Church of Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 5 tells the story of how the gospel, how the good news of Jesus' generosity and laying down his life for other people was spawning in those new Christians a similar generous spirit. Some of them were even selling property that they owned and then coming to the church and giving the proceeds of that sale to the, to the apostles to distribute as they saw fit among the needy people. And this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, looked around, they saw other people doing this. And they got inspired to do it too. And apparently they made a big show of it and publicly committed to do this. We've got this plot of land and we're going to sell it and we're going to bring all the proceeds to the church and give it to God like we've seen others of you do. But after it's sold, instead of bringing the entire amount of the proceeds, 100% like they had pledged to do, what do they do? They secretly kept back a portion of it for themselves, it says. So they vowed a vow, but sinfully, they didn't fulfill it. 
And that was foolish. Solomon would say better to have not vowed that vow than to make that kind of pledge and not stick to it. And God did not take kindly to this. And we'll just say it didn't go well with them. It would have been better if they had chosen to follow the example of Hannah. Do you remember the story of Hannah in the Old Testament? She vowed a vow to God as well, didn't she? She, in prayer, promised that if God would open up her barren womb and give her a son, that she would give him back to the Lord, to his service. And God heard her prayer, and God heard that vow. He answered her prayer. He opened up her womb, and little Samuel was born. And when he was fully weaned, his mother Hannah made good on her vow, didn't she? She brought the young boy to the house of God and devoted him to the service of God. She kept her vow. That's the kind of promise making and promise keeping that Solomon advocates here. And he said, you know what? That reflects a healthy fear of God. So here's the instruction, I believe, for us from this section. Make vows to God carefully and prayerfully and then be diligent to keep them. I wonder how many people who are facing dire circumstances have cried out in desperation to God, Oh God, if you'll get me out of this mess that I created, if you'll get me out of this, God, or with a report they received on their health, if you'll heal me, God, I'll, I'll give it all to you. I'll... I'll surrender my whole life to you. I'll be yours. I'll serve you the rest of my days. I wonder how many people have made vows like that. And then I wonder how many of them saw God actually act and come to their rescue in, in mercy. And I wonder how many of those people never followed through on their vows. I wonder if that strikes a chord with somebody in this room, because maybe that's you. Maybe God brought you to worship tonight so that you could hear a sermon on Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to remind you to make good on that vow that you made to God. I want you to understand that he took your vow seriously. And please do not say before the messenger... And tonight, that's me. Oh, it was a mistake. I, I, was, I was emotional at the time. I got caught up in the moment. I said some things. I really didn't mean it. I mean, I really didn't mean, you know, God, I'll give you my whole life and surrender my whole life to you the rest of my days. I, I just said it because I was desperate. I want you to know, God heard your vow, and he took it seriously. He wants you to keep it. And he acted in mercy, right, on your behalf. Don't make excuses. Don't delay any longer. Fulfill the vow that you made to God. And as you do, watch God open up his plan for you in amazing ways. 
You know, I got to thinking there are other vows or pledges that fit into this category. I think of marriage vows. Yeah? Sacred marriage vows spoken before God in a house of worship, perhaps. We call them vows, right? Will you, Harriet, take you, George, to be your lawful wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, until death do us part? I do. That's a vow. That's a vow in the presence of God, in the house of God. Wow. Or how about pledging as a parent during a child dedication ceremony to bring your children up in the ways of the Lord, to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ? That was a vow. That was a public vow, right? I, I plead with you to not delay in fulfilling it. Get help if you need to. That's fine. But don't put it off. Many of us make financial pledges every year to support the work of God through this church. I do that. Many of you do that. Really, I think that's the kind of vow that, that Solomon had in mind here because he mentions the messenger who was a person at the temple. And evidently, they're hearing somebody's lame excuse for not fulfilling their financial commitments. Oh, it was a mistake. I, I misspoke. I, what was I thinking? I, I, I didn't mean to pledge that amount. He says, why should God be angry at your voice, your words, and destroy the work of your hands? He says, it's very unwise to make a, a rash vow, yes, but if you did, fulfill it anyway. It's not too late to do so if you still have breath in your lungs. You don't want to have God setting himself against you. That's what he's saying. That, that won't be good. See what he's enjoining here? The fear of God, isn't he? Taking God seriously. When we make commitments to God that we really don't intend to keep, that gives evidence of the fact that we're not taking God seriously. And Solomon is saying that is a very foolish thing. It's a very foolish error to make. Sounds like he wanted to put the fear of God in these people. By the way, that's what happened after Ananias and Sapphira received their discipline from the Lord. It says in the book of Acts, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard about it. So evidently some people out in the community were like, Whoa, I'm not going in there. There's some serious stuff going on in there. Funerals and things. I'm going to think twice before joining up with that group. So, to the people of God here in this room tonight, let us be reminded through the word of God that God is holy, utterly holy. And he is to be properly feared. Let us with great care prepare our hearts each and every time we come here to worship him. And let's come in not primarily to be heard, but to hear the word of the Lord and to take his message to heart. And, and let's pray, yes, but in so doing, let's always be mindful of who it is that we're 
praying to. Let us respond to his word with thoughtful vows to live a holy life, vows that we intend to keep. This is the word of the Lord, and we do well to heed it.